Chapter 17 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 17 Our Good Old Trainers. Part A. There are not many football enthusiasts who analyze the factors that bring victory. Many of us do not appreciate the importance attached to the trainer or realize the great part that he plays until we are out of college. We know that the men who bore the brunt of the battle have received their full share of glory, the players and coaches. But there arises in the midst of our athletic world men who trained, men who safeguarded the players. Trainers have been associated with football since the early 80s, and a careful trainer's eye should ever be on the lookout wherever football is played. Players, coaches and trainers go hand in hand in football. Every one of these men that I have known has had a strong personality. Each one, however, differed somewhat from the others. There is a great affection on the part of the players for the man who cares for their athletic welfare. These men are often more than mere trainers. Their personalities have carried them farther than the dressing room. Their interest in the boys has continued after they left college. Their influence has been a lasting one, morally as well as physically. On account of their association, the trainers keep pace with the men about them, not limiting their interest to athletics. They are always found entertaining at the athletic banquets, and their personalities count for much on the campus. They are all but boys grown up, with well-known athletic records behind them. In the hospital, or in the quietness of a college room, or on trips, the trainer is a friend and adviser. Go and talk to the trainer of the football team if you want to get an unbiased opinion of the team's work or of the value of the individual coaches. Some of our trainers know much about the game of football, the technical side, and their advice is valuable. Every trainer longs to handle good material, but more power to the trainer who goes ahead with what he's got and makes the best out of it without a murmur. In our recollections, we know of teams that were reported to be going stale, overtrained, a team of cripples, who slumped, could not stand the test, were easily winded, could not endure. They were nightmares to the trainer. Soon you read in the daily press indications that a change of trainer is about to take place in such a college. Then we turn to another page of our recollections where we read, The team is fit to play the game of their lives. Only 11 men were used in today's game. Great tribute to the trainer. Men could have played all day. No time taken out. Not a man injured. Pink of condition. Usually all this spells victory. Jack McMasters was the first trainer that I met. Scotty, as everyone affectionately called him, never asked a man to work for him any harder than he would work himself. In a former chapter you have read how Jack and I put in some hard work together. I recall a trip to Boston where Princeton was to play Harvard. Most of the Princeton team had retired for the night. About ten o'clock Arthur Poe came down into the corridor of the Vendome Hotel and told Scotty that Bill Church and Johnny Baird were upstairs taking a cold shower. Jack was furious and without stopping for the elevator hustled upstairs two steps at a time only to find both of these players sound asleep in bed. Needless to say that Arthur Poe kept out of sight until Jack retired for the night. A trainer's life is not all pleasure. Once after the train had started from Princeton, this same devilish Arthur Poe, as Jack would call him, rushed up forward to where Jack was sitting in the train and said, "'Jack, I don't see Bummy Booth anywhere on the train. I guess he must have been left behind.' With much haste and worry, Jack made a hurried search of the entire train to find Booth sitting in the last seat in the rear car with a broad grin on his face. Jack's training experience was a very broad one. He trained many victorious teams at Harvard after he left Princeton and was finally trainer at Annapolis. A pronounced decoration that adorns Scotty is a much-admired bunch of gold footballs and baseballs which he wears suspended from his watch chain, in fact so many that he has had to have his chain reinforced. 
If you could but sit down with Jack and admire this prized collection and listen to some of his prized achievements, humorous stories of the men he has trained and some of the victories which these trophies designate, you would agree with me that no two covers could hold them. But we must leave Jack for the present at home with his family in Sandy Hook Cottage, Drummore by Stranrear, Scotland, in the best of health, happy in his recollection of a service well rendered and appreciated by everyone who knew him. Jim Robinson There was something about Jim Robinson that made the men who knew him in his training days refer to him as Dear Old Jim, and although he no longer cries out from the sidelines, Trot Up Men, a favourite expression of his when he wanted to keep the men stirring about, there still lives within all of us who knew him a keen appreciation of his service and loyalty to the different colleges where he trained. He began training at Princeton in 1883, and he finished his work there. How fine was the tribute that was paid him on the day of his funeral! Dolly Dillon, captain of the 1906 team, and his loyal teammates, all of whom had been carefully attended by Jim Robinson on the football field that fall, acted as pallbearers. There was also a host of old athletes and friends from all over the country who came to pay their last tribute to this great sportsman and trainer. Mike Murphy and Jim Robinson were always contesting trainers. At Princeton that day, with the team gathered round, Murphy related some interesting and touching experiences of Jim's career. Jim's family still lives at Princeton, and on one of my recent visits there, I called upon Mrs. Robinson. We talked of Jim, and I saw again the loving cups and trophies that Jim had shown me years before. Jim Robinson trained many of the heroes of the old days, Hector Cowan being one of them. In later years, he idolized the playing of that great football hero, John DeWitt, who appreciated all that Jim did to make his team the winner. The spirit of Jim Robinson was comforting as well as humorous. No mention of Jim would be complete without his dialect. He was an Englishman and abused his H's in a way that was a delight to the team. Ross McClave tells of fun at the training table one day when he asked Jim how to spell saloon. Jim, smiling broadly and knowing he was to amuse these fellows as he had the men in days gone by, said, Hess, hey, hell, two hoes and a hen. Few men got more work out of a team than did Jim Robinson. There was always a time for play and a time for work with Jim. Mike Murphy Mike Murphy was the dean of trainers. Bob Torrey, one of the most remarkable centre rushers that Pennsylvania ever had, is perhaps one of the greatest admirers of Mike Murphy during his latter years. Torrey can tell it better than I can. Murphy's sense of system was wonderful. He was a keen observer and had a remarkable memory. He seemed to do very little in the way of bookkeeping, but his mind was carefully pigeonholed and was a perfect card index. He could have 30 men on the field at once and carry on conversations with visitors and graduates, issue orders to workmen, and never lose sight of a single one of his men. He was popular wherever he went. His fame was not only known here, but abroad. His charm of manner and his cheerful courage will be remembered by all who knew him, but only those who knew him well realise what an influence he had on the boys with whom he worked, and how high were his ideals of manhood. The amount of good done by Mike Murphy in steering boys into the right track can never be estimated. Prep school boys athletically inclined followed Murphy. Many a man went to college in order to get Murphy's training. He was an athletic magnet. The Old Mike The town of Natick, Massachusetts, boasts of Mike Murphy's early days. Wonderful athletic traditions centred there. His early days were eventful for his athletic success, as he won all kinds of professional prizes for short-distance running. Boyhood friends of Mike Murphy tell of the comradeship among Mike Murphy, Keen Fitzpatrick, Pooch and Piper Donovan, all Natick boys. They give glowing accounts of the truck team, consisting of this clever quartet, each of whom were ten-second men in the sprinting game. 
If that great event which was run off at the Marlborough Fair and Cattle Show could be witnessed today, thousands of admirers would love to see in action those trainers, see them as the Natick Hose truck defeated the Westborough team that day and sent the Westborough contingent home with shattered hopes and empty pocketbooks. In connection with Army-Navy games, writes Crolius of Dartmouth, I'll never forget Mike Murphy's wonderful ability to read men's condition by their mental attitude. He was nearly infallible in his diagnosis. Once we questioned Mike, he said, Go get last year's money back, you're going to lick them. And true to his uncanny understanding, he was right. Was it any wonder that men gave Murphy the credit due him? Mike Murphy had a strong influence over the players. He was their ever-present friend. He could talk to a man and his personality could reach farther than any of the coaches. The teams that Murphy talked to between the halves, both at Yale and Pennsylvania, were always inspired. Mike Murphy always gave a man something of himself. It is interesting to read what a fellow trainer, Keen Fitzpatrick, has to say of Mike. Mike first started to train at Yale, then he went to the Detroit Athletic Club in Detroit, then he came back to Yale, then he went to the University of Pennsylvania, then back to Yale again, and finally back to the University of Penn, where he died. We were always great friends and got together every summer. We used to go up to a little country town, Westboro, on a farm, had a little room in a farmhouse outside the town of Natick, and there we used to get together every year, Mike and Fitz, and share our opinions and compare and give each other the benefit of our discoveries of the season's work. Murphy was one of the greatest sprinters this world ever had. They called him Stucky because he had so much grit and determination. The year after Mike died, the intercollegiate was held at Cambridge. All the trainers got together and a lot of flowers were sent out to Mike's grave in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. A chat with Pooch Donovan. Pooch Donovan's success at Harvard goes hand in hand with that of Horton. In the great success of Harvard's varsity, year after year, the fine hand of the trainer has been noticeable. Harvard's teams have stood the test wonderfully well, and all the honours that go with victory have been heaped upon Pooch Donovan's head. Every man on the Harvard squad knows that Donovan can get as much work out of his players as it is possible for any human being to get out of them. Pooch Donovan served at Yale in 1888, 1889 and 1890, when Mike Murphy was trainer there. He and Donovan used to have long talks together, and they were ever comparing notes on the training of varsity teams. Pooch Donovan owes much to Mike Murphy, and the latter was Pooch's loyal supporter. What made Mike Murphy a sturdy man was that he was such a hard loser. He could not stand to lose, says Donovan. You know, the thing that keeps me young is working shoulder to shoulder with these young fellows. This to me, in the dressing room, where we have no time for anything but cold truths. It was the same thing that kept Mike Murphy going ten years after the doctors said he would soon be all in. That was when he returned to Yale, after he had been at Pennsylvania. There is something about this sort of work that invigorates us and keeps us young. I'm no longer a young man in years, but it is the spirit and inspiration of youth with which this work identifies me that keeps me really young. When I asked Pooch about Eddie Mann's great all-round ability, his face lit up, and I saw immediately that what I had heard was true, that Donovan simply idolised Eddie Mann. Mann lives in Natick, Massachusetts, where Donovan also has his home. He has seen Ned Mann grow to manhood. Mann had his first football training as a player on the Natick High School team. Ned Mann, said Pooch, was the best all-round football man I have ever handled. He was easy to handle, eager to do as he was told, and he never caused the trainer any worry. Up to the very last moment he played, he was eager to learn everything he could that would improve his game. He had lots of football ability. You know, Mann was a great star at Andover. He kicked wonderfully there and was good in all departments of the game, and he improved 100% after he came to Harvard. Pooch Donovan told me about the first day that Eddie Mann came out upon the Harvard field. At Cambridge, little is known by the head coach about a freshman's ability. One day, Horton said to Pooch Donovan, 
"'Where is that natic friend of yours? "'Bring him over to the stadium and let's see him kick.' "'Donovan got man, and Horton said to man, "'Let's see you kick.' "'Man boosted the ball seventy yards, and Horton said, "'What kind of a kick is that?' "'Man thought it was a great kick.' "'How do you think any ends can cover that?' said Horton. "'Man thereupon kicked a couple more, low ones, but they went about as far.' "'Who told you you could kick?' quoth Horton. "'You must kick high enough for your ends to cover the distance.' "'Take it easy and don't get excited,' Donovan was whispering to Man on the side. "'Take your time, Ned.' But Man continued kicking from bad to worse. Horton was getting disgusted, and finally remarked, "'Your ends never can cover those punts.' Man then kicked one straight up over his head, and the first word ever uttered by him on the Harvard field was his reply to Horton. "'I guess almost any end can cover that punt,' he said.' Donovan tells me that he used to carry in his pocket a few blank cartridges for starting sprinters. Sitting on a bench with some friends on Soldier's Field one day, he reached into his hip pocket for some loose tobacco. Unconsciously, he stuffed into the heel of his pipe a blank cartridge that had become mixed with the tobacco. The gun club was practicing within hearing distance of the field. As Donovan lit his pipe, the cartridge went off. He thought he was shot. Leaping to his feet, he ran down the field, his friends after him. "'I was surprised at my own physical condition, at my being able to stand so well the shock of being shot,' says Donovan in telling the story. "'My friends thought also that I was shot, but when I slowed up, still bewildered, and they caught up with me, they were puzzled to see my face covered with powder marks and a broken pipe stem sticking out of my mouth. Not until then did any of us realise what had really happened. The cartridge had grazed my nose slightly, but outside of that I was all right. Since then I am very careful what I put in my tobacco.' Eddie is known as Pooch Donovan's pet. Probably the bluest time that Donovan ever had, in fact he says it was the bluest, was when Eddie Mann had an off day in the stadium. That was the day when Cornell beat Harvard. Mann himself says it was the worst day he ever had in his life, and he blames himself. It was just as things will come sometimes, Pooch said to me. Nobody knows why they will come, but come they will once in a while. Burr, the great Harvard captain, said Pooch, was a natural-born leader of men. He knew a lot of football, and Horton thought the world of him. Burr went along finely until the last week of the season. Then, in falling on the ball, he bruised his shoulder and would not allow himself to go into the Yale game. It was really this display of good judgment on his part that enabled Harvard to win. Too often a team has been handicapped by the playing of a crippled veteran. As a matter of fact, the worst kind of substitute is often better than a crippled player. The fact that the great captain, Burr, stood on the sidelines while his team was playing urged his teammates on to greater efforts. In this same game, the opposite side of this question was demonstrated. Bobby Birch, the Yale captain, who had been injured the week before the game, was put in the game. His injury handicapped the Yale team considerably. Pooch Donovan had been eight years at Harvard. He has five gold footballs, which he prizes and wears on his watch chain. During the eight years there have been five victories over Yale, two ties and one defeat. Pooch has been a football player himself, and the experience has made him a better trainer. In 1895, he played on Temple's team of the Duquesne Athletic Club. He was trainer and halfback and was very fond of the game. Later on, he played in Cleveland against the Chicago Athletic Club, on whose team played Heffelfinger, Sport Donnelly, and other famous knights of the gridiron. "'In the morning we did everything we could to make the stay of the visiting team pleasant,' says Donovan, regarding those days. "'But in the afternoon it was different, and in the midst of the game a fellow couldn't help wondering how men could be so nice to each other in the morning and so rough in the afternoon.' Pooch Donovan cannot say enough in favour of Dr. E. H. Nichols, the doctor for the Harvard team. Pooch's judgment is endorsed by many a Harvard man that I have talked to. End of chapter 17, part A.